0: There was this narrative coming to the fore being kind of written by people, often women, but sometimes men too, um, who would basically say, I've been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. I'm wrestling with this and reckoning with it, and I'm coming to realize that. I'm sick because there's something about my life that's inauthentic. Why why else would my own immune system, the thing that is designed to defend me, be attacking my body? That must be symbolic of some deeper meaning, some deeper reality.
1: Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures the human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified from the New England Journal of Medicine. My guest today is Megan O'Rourke, a writer, poet, and editor who edits the Yale Review. Her most recent book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, was published in 2022. It's a memoir of her own experiences with autoimmune disease And like much of her work, it focuses on the intersection of health, illness, and social psychology. I recently sat down with Megan to talk about her journalistic investigation of her own illness, the trustworthiness of physicians, and how cultural narratives affect our experiences of illness. Welcome, Megan. I think the world probably knows you as a writer, but to me, you will always be this person who is so kind to me when I was 22 years old and doing an MFA at Columbia in fiction writing, which I ended up dropping out of. But during that time, I was a fiction intern at The New Yorker. They let people who were doing MFAs come and spend a day a week reading the fiction slush pile, the unsolicited manuscripts. And you were an editor there at the time. And I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world, except (laughs) nobody actually ever spoke to me. And I um, ran into you one day in the bathroom and you asked me how I was doing. And then you took me to lunch at the Condé Nast Cafeteria, which is this whole remarkable scene. And yeah, such a scene. And it was the best thing that happened to me that entire year, so wow. I will always remember that, and uh, it's so fun now to get to talk to you again, in, especially in the wake of the success of your book,
0: so welcome to the show. Thank you. It's such a total pleasure to be here talking with you now in, in your new role, <laughs> or not new to you, new yeah. to me.
1: <laughs> I guess I have a new role, too, so I, I loved your book, and I really want to focus on How we as physicians and a medical system can better care for those with autoimmune disease. But since a lot of our audience probably won't have read it, let's just start with your story. And now that I look back on that time, I realize that was probably when you were starting to feel unwell.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So, so how did it all start for you?
0: Yeah. So, it's a hard story to summarize, which is part of its complexity, but the, the, kind of boiled down version is that starting when I graduated from college, um, when I was 21, I began having these strange bouts of neurological symptoms, um, including what felt like electric shocks all over my body and also bouts of vertigo. Actually, I don't think you were at this New Yorker office, but before the New Yorker moved to the Condé Nast building, we were in an office down the street that had, a, had two floors and a staircase between them that had Um, risers, but no backing to the risers. And I remember it was really hard for me to walk up and down those stairs because I couldn't gauge, I just couldn't gauge their physicality. It was like this strange sense that um, my entire way of reading the world had changed. And this was really noticeable to me because I had been a gymnast actually. And um, someone who was really used to having quite a lot of what, that term air sense that you might have heard from Simone Biles um, pulling out of the Olympics, like her, I suddenly had no air sense, and it was it was really noticeable. So starting around then, just went on this roller coaster of you know mysterious seeming symptoms that roamed the body and came and went, and I thought of them as all my little problems, <laughs> and they didn't make sense to me because they were so diverse. Um, so the neurological symptoms, but then things like joint pain. Um, I was having really bad night sweats every night. I um, and then just bouts of really crushing fatigue that would come for a few days and then go, and I would feel almost totally fine, and then it would come back again. So this was really mysterious to me, and I kept thinking it's something I'm eating, it's something I'm doing wrong about just living life as an adult. I'm not sleeping enough, and you know what happened was I began seeing doctors to ask questions about it and. You know, I think my doctors were, I had a really great GP and she checked a whole bunch of stuff and did find a positive ANA and said, well, maybe you have lupus, let's look into that. But nothing ever really showed up in a clear cut, you know, determinative way on my lab tests. And so very quickly it became, you know, maybe there's anxiety, maybe you're depressed, maybe you're just stressed. And that was a narrative that made sense to me. I thought, okay, that could be this. Um, and basically that's how it continued for about a decade until my mother died and I got very sick after she died. And that's when I, my health kind of fell off a cliff and I embarked on the quest that the, the book really recounts, yeah, for answers about what was wrong.
1: Why don't you, for the sake of the audience, tell us what you were eventually diagnosed with and, the, and then we can go backwards and talk about your interactions with the healthcare system.
0: So absolutely. So at about 21, I started having these really noticeable neurological symptoms. I'd just graduated from Yale University. I had started my job at The New Yorker. I was an assistant at the time. Basically have this decade of up and down health. And then when I'm 32, my mother died and I got a virus after she died. And I just never recovered (laughs) and went to the doctor. And it it turned out I had all these viruses. I had Epstein-Barr virus. I had parvovirus. I had cytomegalovirus all at the same time. Um, and that's when my health kind of fell off a cliff and I started becoming a bit more, uh, Assertive, let's say, about finding a specialist who could help me. And I saw a wonderful specialist in women's health who has listened to my family history, which unbeknownst to me included a cluster of autoimmune disease, but I didn't even know that these were related diseases. Um, and as she listened to me, she said, Listen, I highly suspect that you have an autoimmune disease. You're, you know, the story you tell is consonant with many different autoimmune diseases. Let's do some really thorough testing. So she diagnosed me with. Um, Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroiditis, which I did at that point clearly have. I had some anomalous results that made it hard to detect. My TSH never went up, so you had to really look at the full thyroid lab and my antibodies. Um, But I had it. And, And then I saw a rheumatologist at her suggestion who was like, I think you have some kind of unspecified connective tissue disorder because I had a positive ANA and some other antibodies. Um, but I didn't really get better, you know, with with the thyroid supplement treatment. And so I kept exploring. And over time, I came to think it was reasonable to look into tick-borne illness, which I know is a really controversial um, subject. But I had a lot of symptoms that were consonant with Lyme disease. My symptoms, my neurological symptoms had begun uh, shortly after spending time um, in Connecticut, just two towns over from Old Lyme, in the summer with my family, and uh, that was when I suddenly started getting sick. So, I got diagnosed with um, suspected, you know, late stage Lyme disease and entered treatment for that and got much, much better. Um, but along the way, along with that, I got diagnosed with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which, you know, involves you know, uh, dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which made a lot of sense of my remaining symptoms after I was treated for for tick-borne illness because I was having fainting episodes and things like that and just strange... Um, racing heart and a lot of fatigue at the end of the day after exertion. And now that I finally got diagnosed with POTS, it was as I was finishing the book, <laughs> it was in really the last stages and I was like, I think there's something else still. So I describe it often as being like peeling an onion. And I think one thing that's maybe helpful for your audience is to know that, you know, my own approach to this all was one of um, someone who was quite skeptical initially that I could have so many different diagnoses, that I could have a tick-borne illness, that, you know, just Sort of approached it with a journalist's um, uh you know a journalist as a journalist by training I, i'm i'm taught to be skeptical and ask a lot of questions and i think that's the approach that i took and where i've ended up is really the product of asking a lot of questions and coming to what seems to me to be a reasonable narrative but one that still has a lot of uncertainty in it
1: so can you talk about both good and bad interactions with the healthcare system I think I've heard you talk about physicians you trust and then those you don't trust. And, you know, trust is a thing that we all at least were thinking a lot about during the pandemic. And I think we should still be thinking about, but what is it that made you feel a physician was trustworthy or untrustworthy?
0: You know, it's interesting. I tend in the book and even now to think much more systemically and a little bit less specifically about individual physicians. But that said. I had a neurologist, you know, in my, I think, in my late 20s or early 30s, when I started to really sort of look more deeply into my symptoms, I was referred to this wonderful neurologist who was then at Weill Cornell, and she listened to my story about the electric shocks, which were actually one of the worst symptoms I had. It was there were symptoms that many doctors passed over, but they were among the most debilitating and um, the thing that I experienced. It really interfered with my life and my sense of well being and she listened and she said you know first i want to say that i absolutely believe what you're telling that you're experiencing what you're telling me and i've actually had other patients many of them young women like you come and tell me this and then she said i'm i don't know what it is i i can i have some suspicions and there's a there's a clinical there's a research trial that we could enroll you in It's looking into small fiber neuropathy. It wouldn't necessarily be able to do anything for you, but maybe you would feel you're helping benefit, you know, this larger pursuit of human knowledge. And, you know, I don't know that to this day she understands how important that was in building trust and actually also creating relief for me. And I think that one thing that helps um, patients who have kind of messy stories like mine... Um, trust physicians and healthcare workers is when there's just a certain level of really listening and witnessing, and and when possible believing when appropriate, right? Just trying to believe in the testimony of the patient and try to imagine for a moment that this is real and what that might be like for for this person. Whereas I think there's a lot of um, a lot of time when you have a kind of messy, complex, chronic condition that doesn't you know, show up on labs in a really clear-cut way initially, one is met with skepticism, right? And I think when you're suffering, it's really painful to go to the doctor's office and be met with skepticism. we can talk about why that is and why skepticism may be appropriate in some circumstances but what i can say from my experience is that you know building that trust does involve i think some leap of faith sometimes from physicians and healthcare workers to sort of ratify the experience of the of the person um, before them the other thing is i think weirdly trust is built when physicians and healthcare workers acknowledge the limits of medical knowledge and their own knowledge, right? I actually think I never expected my physicians to, I still don't, to fix everything. That's not part of my approach to it, but it was so helpful perhaps, um, you know, paradoxically when she said, I really don't know if I even know what this is, but I I believe you, that that act of sharing in my not knowing was this profound act of relational empathy.
1: Wow, yeah, I think, to be able to say, I recognize your suffering, even though I don't know what's wrong with you is probably one of the more important things that we can do. But for some reason, it's really hard for us. And maybe it's the having the humility to say, I don't know, or maybe there's some disconnect that, you know, to say like you are suffering, but I'm never going to be able to tell you what's wrong, that feels like it goes against the grain of what we're supposed to do. But I understand why that's such a powerful moment for someone as a patient. And there's so much in your book that I identify with. I, like you, I'm a writer. I also have an autoimmune disease, lupus. And even before I got A diagnosis, I've been obsessed with the role narrative plays in our lives and shaping our identities. And now more specifically with illness narrative. And so much of your book is about sort of carrying this messy story and then figuring out a narrative that suits you, that feels right to you. And I think in that process, you discover these narratives that don't suit you, that are sort of antithetical to your experience. So I want to hear you talk about those because I think that we as physicians and as a system also have a role in shaping what those narratives are. And so I'd love to hear about narratives you encountered around autoimmune disease that you ended up rejecting.
0: Yeah. So one of the really fascinating things to me when I got my diagnosis of autoimmune thyroiditis was... That um, I immediately went online. You know, I'm a researcher, so I'm going to go online anyway. And it's the 21st century patient thing to do, right? (laughs) You go online and you start reading. Um, And in this case, I joined several patient groups on Facebook at the time. And these were. Patient groups that were specifically about Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I was also in some that were about um, different diets designed to heal the gut and work with, you know, support the microbiome. I think I was also in some general autoimmune groups. And what I found over and over was that there were, and what I had experienced and was experiencing myself, was that there was this narrative coming to the fore, being kind of written by people, often women, but sometimes men too. Um, who would basically say, I've been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. I'm wrestling with this and reckoning with it, and I'm coming to realize that I'm sick because there's something about my life that's inauthentic. Why why else would my own immune system, the thing that is designed to defend me, be attacking my body? That must be symbolic of some deeper meaning, some deeper reality. Uh, This was something I was feeling in some ways, too. I thought I must have lived the wrong way. You know, Maybe I'm in the wrong relationship. Maybe I'm too stressed all the time. I'm in the wrong job. There's something about my life that's inauthentic, and it's caused me to be sick, right? This narrative dovetails, by the way, really powerfully with some of the other things that I think patients with autoimmune disease are doing, which is you know thinking logically in my view about you know the role that like chemicals or processed food might or might not play in our in our lives right so the, sort of this narrative of the inauthentic modern life dovetails with. At the same time, I think a lot of the dietary work people are doing to try to get back to like a more holistic diet, right? So it's very powerful. Um, But as I thought about it, I just was like, I cannot accept this narrative. And I want to at least point out that it is a narrative rather than a reality. Because um, the ways that we... Think about illness are shaped by the metaphors that are handed to us by medicine, by culture. This is something that Susan Sontag writes about so powerfully in her book, Illness as Metaphor, where she's really writing out of her own experience of being diagnosed with breast cancer at a moment when a narrative, a cultural narrative existed to suggest that People, with women with breast cancer, were stressed and repressed people, right? That they had repressed something and it made them sick. This was a very similar, what I was seeing on these groups was very similar to that, right? It was the kind of 21st century version of that cancer narrative. And Sontag treats this tendency to psychologize and narrativize illness through these metaphors, back to tuberculosis, which was seen as a disease of sensitive people, um, and points out that we really have to be alert to our own habits of of using these kind of cultural metaphors um, to think about disease rather than the biological processes. So she's often misread as meaning that you know you shouldn't use metaphors to describe your disease. that's not what she's saying. you know we can use metaphors all we want. What she's really interested in is the way that like a kind of pre-existing cultural narrative gets turned into a metaphorical reality. And that was what was happening with autoimmune disease, right All these people were like, I've brought this on myself by living an inauthentic life. And that struck me as this very like kind of late capitalist, <laughs> Interpretation of one's biological disease, right? Which was to say, well, actually, maybe the problem is not an individual one, but a social one. Maybe it has to do with the many, the 200,000 chemicals we have in the environment, that some of which have potentially autogenic, you know, uh, you know, can can kind of trigger autoimmune disease. We know of a few that do uh, things like that. So I became very interested in why are we telling ourselves a story as a culture that autoimmune disease is the fault of the individual? And we can look back to the history of immunology and look at the word autoimmune as a as an origin for that auto meaning self, right? And sort of the the immune system turning on the self. That i that that idea of selfhood being part of um, the immune system and of autoimmune disease. Becomes really, really rich for I think, kind of misinterpretation, if that makes sense,
1: yeah, it makes total sense, and you know i've I found relief in reading those parts of the book because honestly, I think somewhere inside of me i I feel like this is my fault um, on some <laughs> level, so it was it was really and I actually have taken the opposite approach, I think to what you do, which is I don't know if it's the doctor and me or, or what, just some form of denial, but like, I never read about lupus. I never Google anything. I've never been part of a patient group. Like Mm -hmm. I can't handle it at all. And so it was interesting for me to read, you know, your interactions with these women who then were verbalizing things that I've felt, but sort of pushed away. But, but I think like any narrative, there's complexity and, yeah. You sort of get to this too, but there's this there's this fine line with autoimmune disease where you can say, obviously, okay, this isn't my fault, but also there's this element of control that's foisted upon you all the time where people, wherever you are, they're like telling you to see a nutritionist or to diversify your microbiome or sleep more, mm-hmm. exercise more, whatever it is. So unlike some diseases, and I guess, and you know, I take care of patients with with cardiac disease. So, you know, there are a lot of behavioral elements there too, which I've, I think I'm more sensitive to now to try to not shame people because of yeah. what I experience sometimes. But, you know, how do you sort of say this isn't my fault, but also I do have some agency over what yeah. happens to me?
0: Yeah. Well, I think of it as, yes, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head and exactly what I try to really dig into in the kind of central part of the book, which is I think there's this narrative being handed down of, it is all my fault, <laughs> I have to fix everything, and actually I want to refocus our attention on the social factors that may be contributing to, um, and the political factors that may be contributing to the rise of autoimmune disease in the West. But at the same time, one of the really complex things that leads us in the first place to say that is that autoimmune disease isn't quite like, um, it's not like catching a virus necessarily, right? It it, it it's, can come, arise out of a complex Interplay between genes, environment, and and lifestyle, um, and and things like catching a virus, um, and so you know, one thing I had found when I was really sick was that if I had a really stressful week ahead, all of my symptoms would intensify, and for a long time that had led me to think this is just um, anxiety, right? Because it does get worse when things are hard for me. And it was really only um, you know as I was researching the book that I came to understand that just because a disease can be worsened through lifestyle and maybe needs to be managed through lifestyle doesn't mean it's all my fault, right? That we can look for a more nuanced narrative. So what I'm saying in a roundabout way is that I think this is a both and situation where we both can say, we really need to think about the social factors that have led to the rise of autoimmune disease in developed nations. Um, and we need to equip individuals who live with autoimmune diseases um, with the tools to help manage their own illness and to know that this is not a quick fix where there's just a pill. It there is a, there are, there can be lifestyle changes. Those are really hard for patient and doctor alike i think to partner on it's one of the hardest parts of medicine as i imagine as i see it hearing from physicians um and it's really really complicated right like i had a really bad flare uh, a couple of months ago now and i felt so responsible i just thought and i had a lot of work to do and i just was like mad at myself because i was like i ate something that might've had gluten in it. I'm very sensitive to gluten and it triggered a whole bunch of other, anyway, but it was a whole week of sort of self-recrimination. And I had to stop and remind myself that I had just written this book that was like, you know, yes, I can try to manage this, but the fact of having it is not my fault. Right. Those are, those are two different things. Um, yeah.
1: Right. I, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've nailed that one yet. (laughs) Um, yeah. What Are the social factors, do we really understand those and how they contribute to autoimmune disease?
0: We don't. There's a lot of suggestive research. Um, You know, I think no one would say, no one that I talked to would say, here's a definitive. Answer, but for the book, you know, in my kind of putting on my journalist's hat, so the book weaves my own story, but it weaves quite a lot of research and journalistic um, interviews into the the story. Um, so I spoke to Noel Rose, who had discovered autoimmune thyroiditis and was the founder of the first autoimmunity kind of clinic at Johns Hopkins, and and a whole bunch of other researchers and um, immunologists and so forth. And you know, I think there's a few things that people are looking at. And one are changes in the microbiome um, over the past century, in particular in Western countries. Um, so looking at changes in the food system, industrialized food, how our diet has changed really radically, and yet our microbiome you know, um, isn't really suited for the processed food we eat. So there's... A lot of evidence to suggest that, like each generation is passing along a kind of further compromised microbiome with less diversity of species, in essence, and that that you know might be an explanation for, or at least a partial explanation for, the rise in allergic and autoimmune um, diseases. Right, so we see both of those sides of the immune system. There's also some preliminary evidence looking at chemicals. We have many more chemicals in the environment since 1950. Um, we are alert to the possibility of carcinogenic chemicals. We have been less uh, attuned to the possibility that these chemicals might be what the journalist Donna Jackson Nakazawa calls autogenic chemicals. Very hard to parse apart and study and not a lot of funding for the study of this. But a few chemicals have been studied where they are shown to trigger um, autoimmune processes in animals, and presumably, us, in particular, lupus, actually. Um, so, so environment in those ways, so you start to look at a picture in which it's really not my fault for being a little bit stressed at work, right? Um, and then the other thing is viruses and pathogens, and there's a lot of evidence that pathogens and viruses can be triggering autoimmune disease. We see that with um, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. Definitely, it seems to produce a lot of autoimmune activity of certain types during the acute phase. The question is, is that going to have a long tail and trigger a big wave of autoimmune disease? Um, So you know, we live also since the advent of the industrial revolution in a in a world where we just get more viruses. You know, we travel more, we're exposed to more. There's this idea that that's normal. It's normal for us, but it's maybe not how um, it always was. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I, I want to go back to what you said. Like, it's not my fault for being stressed at work because this is another theme that comes up a lot in your book and it's something that I also think about a lot because I find it really stressful to try not to be stressed. Like totally. you know, <laughs> just like you spend your whole life gunning. And I actually, I know that, you know, we're having this moment in our culture of anti-ambition and, you know, no. we're not hardcore anymore. And like, you know, all the things. And I'm like, I kind of still want to be that way. <laughs> like, I'm okay with being like hardcore and ambitious, but like how, I mean, there's this moment with your husband, I think where he says something to you about how, it's clear that stress is bad for your disease, but and then when you get sick, you get more stressed. And so, obviously, you're an extremely accomplished person, and you have been your whole life and talented. And I'm sure I know from listening to you also that that you work extremely hard. So, how do you mm-hmm. how do you manage having a life that is productive? Also, you're a mother of like two <laughs> toddlers, um, and without letting stress make you more sick?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I definitely don't have like a perfect handle on that at all. I'm sure that um, certainly since having my children, I've been sicker at times than I probably needed to be because I just was had too much too many balls in the air. The way I think about You know, the way I think about chronic illness um, is multidimensional, and there's the biological reality of the disease itself, right? And then there's the illness experience, the experience I have of it, and then there's my life and me that I want to have in some way that feels like outside of the disease. This is where I totally relate to not looking at the lupus groups, not reading about it, right? We, I don't want to be, even though I've just written a book about chronic illness and I think we need to pay more attention to it and this is really important national conversation to have, I also am more than my illness, right? And so I think one way that I've come to think about Living with illness with meaning is that the things that bring that deep meaning and sometimes joy along, you know, stress yes, but also joy um, and also just a sense of worth and self satisfaction and um, and again meaning. I come back to that word are really worth it to me, right? They they probably bring benefits that are hard to measure, but I bet if there were some magical way of measuring you know, overall that would be beneficial. Right. So, but that said, it's sort of now my job to learn to do things like say no, which I'd never learned how to do. And to also, I think, um, you know, learn how to be someone who doesn't let the stressors of the world always kind of impinge fully upon myself. I think I was someone without, you know, if, if, someone around me needed something and was unhappy about something or whatever, I I would just take it very deeply inside. So I think my job is not to never have stress in my life. My job is now to learn how to live with stress in my life in a healthier way, right? And that can involve therapy, that can involve meditation, that can involve exercise, that can involve, you know, a whole constellation of things that I now have to do to be able to kind of keep working. And the thing I want to point out is that it takes a lot of privilege (laughs) uh, to, you know, and it takes a lot of support to be able to slow down and kind of get those tools. Right.
1: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about this lifestyle management, because again, it's, it's this sort of, place where you're trying to strike a balance. There, There's a funny moment in your book, I think, before you ended up getting diagnosed. And I think you had lived in LA for a bit. And you go on this diet where you eliminate gluten and you start eating everything that's unprocessed including like you peel your own almonds and then you grind them up and you like make these concoctions which sounds amazing but there's a moment where you're at your kitchen sink i think and you're grinding your almonds and you look over at your husband and he's like. Eaten a donut and a bowl of cereal and done the Times crossword, and he's like radiating health. And you're just <laughs> sitting there on the
0: cereal Yeah, exactly. Yes.
1: yes. And so I think then a couple, maybe a little bit later in the book, you you meet up with a friend and you're you ask yourself, like, am I becoming a health-obsessed narcissist? And right. that moment also really struck a chord with me because. That is an identity that I do not want in any mm-hmm. way. But mm-hmm. I find that when, you, when you're living with these diseases, you're constantly trying to protect yourself from essentially getting worse. Yeah. And that is – there's just no way to not make that part of your identity. But yeah. it's something yeah. that I'm exquisitely uncomfortable with because yeah. I – I do feel sometimes like a health obsessed narcissist.
0: Yeah. And no. I know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, how do you deal with that?
0: You know, it's still hard for me, right? It is really still hard for me. But I, I totally, right. I neither want to be, um, I, I think what I can back up for a sec to say too quickly is that. We were talking about different narratives, and I think one narrative I had early on was this narrative that I could somehow end up controlling the course of my illness through obsessive attention to, you know, exposure to chemicals, intake, sleep, all of this stuff. So there's also this kind of one doesn't want to, like, pathologize one's own um one doesn't want one's own self-care to become kind of pathologically obsessive, right? There's there's words for this. I'm forgetting the word words we talk about. There's a term for people who are obsessed with eating healthfully. It's like orthorexia, I think, right? Where, So um, I really have struggled with what's that fine line, right? And I think one challenge is it's always shifting, right? I mean, when I'm doing better, like the summer, I'm always much healthier in the summer. There's not as many viruses around. Viruses are big triggers for me. They send my immune system into some kind of disarray. And um, so, in the summer, there's a lot more vitamin D, fewer viruses. I'm usually really doing well, so I can be more expansive and fluid in my self care, right? In the winter, I usually have to be a lot stricter and careful, more careful. One way that I've taught myself to do it is that if I think about it as just my problem, like I have to do this for me, it's really hard for me not to feel like I'm becoming this health obsessed narcissist or that I'm rigid or whatever. Um, temperamentally, I'm someone who likes to go with the flow, but I can't, but if I think about it as I'm part of, I'm trying to be part of a larger group of people who want to help normalize chronic illness and chronic illness, self-care while also having rich careers, families, um, joy, vacation, whatever, then it becomes much easier for me because I think, what would I tell my son? What would I, what would I tell my friend? I would tell her, take care of yourself. It's You have to, it's just part of your life. And so what I kind of do this little mental game in my head, which I'm sure if I had more, um comfort with putting boundaries (laughs) up I could not have to do. But since you feel like this too, I can tell you, like, I'll often just be like, what would my mom tell me? You know, I wanted to go do something in New York I'd promised to do. I was really not well. And I was going to fight through the rain and go take the train from Connecticut. And I was like, this is a bad idea. I'm going to be really sick for days. So I just have to call and say, I'm so sorry. I, You know, I cannot make it in the end. It's very hard. It's a lifelong process of learning for me, but I find that that distancing is really, really helpful.
1: Yeah. So since you brought up your mom, I mean, so your mom died of of colorectal cancer, right? When you were 32 and she was in her early 50s.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm so sorry. And um, you wrote a whole book about grief. And, you know, one thing that struck me in your book is that you you grieved your mother and then you dealt with this different kind of grief that i think we don't talk about at all in medicine which is you sort of lost a decade of your life to this disease and in a in a way that you know you don't get to get back and i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about not just what that grief was like when you when you sort of realized this lost time but also is there anything that we as as doctors, and again, I keep pushing you on these individual mm, things yeah, that we can do yeah. as opposed to the systemic, but I, I'm I'm just like a big believer that doctors have this power to help people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think I love that. Let's lean into that. I want I want doctors to have the power to help people. I think there's three. Th- I mean, so I absolutely experienced grief, I was too sick for a while to experience grief, right? So funnily enough, I think one thing that can be sometimes confusing to the loved ones in my life is that the grief is actually more intense, the better I feel, right? So the grieving really happened when I got better. Um, And I'm not better in the sense of have, you know, overcome my illness, I still live with illness, but I had a period of my life where I was really not functional. I was really suffering physically, um, in a daily way. And I, I just wanted to have kids. That was impossible. I mean, just, there was, you know, a lot of suffering. Um, but it was so physical that in a way I couldn't grieve it till I had the strength to look back and also see, wow, this is possible. This is how I feel now. Right. I feel pretty good. I mean, I, Yeah, half my days and my months, but in general, I'm living a rich life. I have a family. Um, So I think one thing that people need to be aware of with chronic illness is that grief comes in strange times and in unpredictable waves, which is honestly true of any kind of grief, grief, losing a parent um, or a loved one. So grief is really unpredictable. I also think it's lifelong. It's still there for me. It comes out and really moments that I'm not expecting it to. Um, it can come out when a flare happens and I think, wait, how am I still really dealing with this? Or just the reality that I can't, sometimes I sort of pretend, can pretend I'm not, I don't have any diagnoses and then something happens and I'm reminded, oh, I can't, you know, my POTS is really triggered by temperature. So I can't take my kids on playdates in the winter outside without then having to spend a day in bed. Um, Stuff like that. So when I think about doctors and what sort of right, what are the action points, I think there's three things that are really powerful and really underutilized. One is that act of empathy, recognition, and, and acknowledging the limitations of your own knowledge that we already touched on. So just empathetic witnessing. I see your suffering I'm just letting it be. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to fix it even yet. I'm just acknowledging the reality of your suffering. That is an incredible tool to let that be. Then pivoting to the fixing or living with. If, you know, if we can't fix it, then the question is how are we helping people live with illness? And here's where I think physicians could more often ask the question What's bothering you the most right now about your condition? What's most on your mind? Because I found that rheumatologists, for instance, always wanted to talk to me about my joints. And I have a lot mm-hmm. of joint pain. I do. I have like tons of joint pain and then and rashes. And but like it just that doesn't bother me. What bothers me is this n- neurological pain that I was having. So my rheumatologist is amazing, and she'll say to me, "What's bothering you most?" And we'll talk about the nerve pain, and she'll be like, "Well, you know, some people find I forget what it's called. Um, it's actually an antidepressant. We also seems to work on nerve pain. Uh, so she'll say yeah, something." No. Yes. I think it was oh. that, um, she'll say some people find this helpful Are you, do you want to go on it? Is that bad? Is it bad enough to go on? And I'm like, well, it's, I'm pretty m- managing it this way. I'd rather not take a medication, but she'll be like, you know what? I'll write you a prescription so you have it. So the day that it becomes overwhelming, you just know you have an out and things like that, where she's really working with me as a partner and really figuring out what's interfering with my quality of life. And I think also a lot of patients have anxiety about access to our doctors. Like suddenly I, can have a really bad day, but my doctor can't just be on call for me, right? So I think things where there's like a prescription in waiting for you, or you you fill the prescription in case, but the doctor knows you may not use it. Just these very honest conversations about managing illness, I I think can be profoundly life-changing. And it it interested me that very few of my doctors, um, and maybe everyone listening does this, but very few of my doctors would start the conversation by saying which of your symptoms is bothering you most? And how can I be a partner in thinking about how you live with it? Or what aspect of maybe what's bothering you most right now is just having a chronic illness and you need to talk about it for five minutes, you know?
1: I mean, that's super helpful to me as a doctor. I'll definitely say that. So Len, I think that sort of gets us to the topic that is probably like, the most fundamental theme of your book, which is this idea of being seen. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you call it the invisible kingdom. And for so long you felt unseen. And Mm -hmm. I would love to hear a little bit about the ways you felt unseen. And then again, what I keep coming back to, how do we help patients feel seen when we don't know? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, the way I felt unseen was that, you know, for 14 years, I was going to doctors and saying something feels wrong. And I was receiving a variety of answers from, are you stressed to maybe it's just your period, which made no sense to me because I had my period for 20 years without having any feeling like I was dying, um, you know, to just kind of in curiosity, but a lot of reflexive car- characterization of my symptoms as um either psychological in nature or i suspect kind of a sense that i was making a mountain out of a molehill right that was that was my fear that was sort of that i had i definitely internalized from physicians that maybe these they were just the normal aches and pains of everyday life right um and i was just complaining about that. <laughs> So I think that was this act of not seeing, right? I was literally my, my the reality, which was that I was actually quite sick, um, was not seen. And so I think that the challenge for doctors who are, you know, you have very busy schedules, you're pulled in a million bureaucratic directions, you have a lot of people to see, um, you have misinformation to contend with, you know, how do you stop and really look at the person in front of you who's maybe kind of tentatively saying, something's wrong. And, and imagine for a moment or try to take in for a moment or explore for a moment that there's something there to really look at. Um, And I, and I think that brings us to this larger, interesting question of the reason I wrote the book was that it became quite clear to me at a certain point in my own trajectory that not only was my illness not being seen, but millions of people were in a similar situation to me where they were going to physicians and saying something's wrong. The lab work didn't show clear cut results and they were being told, you're fine. Maybe talk to us, a therapist. So that's an intervention that we need to make on a on an individual and systemic level. And one thing that I found really fascinating as someone who's evidence-based is well when we know that autoimmune diseases overwhelmingly affect women, that they often affect young women and that our testing is not very good for them in the early stages, which is true, why are why is the medical system so quick to tell people maybe go see a therapist? Why are not why are more doctors not pausing and saying, "Hmm, I have a young woman here with joint pain, roaming You know, these problems, maybe the tests are just not showing what's happening yet, right? And so I think that to make this sort of scope of the problem visible, we have to first understand that medical knowledge is incomplete and imperfect. Right. And that's okay. (laughs) You know, we have a lot of really good science happening. Um, but we need to acknowledge the boundaries of what tests can and can't show. I think medical professionals need to be really informed about, you know, how the the state, the testing is that they're using, um, and know that someone who's coming back over and over and saying, I'm really suffering in my experience, you know, a lot of those people really are suffering with something that is not primarily psychological in origin. It's something organic. Um, and we need to see those people and we need to ask ourselves why as a culture, because I think this extends beyond medicine, do we reflexively think that young woman is anxious, you know, and I talk about the reasons for this in the book. There's a history of, you know, hypochondria, hysteria, thinking about young women with mysterious symptoms as, you know, hy- hysterics, um, and that legacy is really still with us. You know, we have not fully grappled with that legacy, that intellectual legacy. And it doesn't mean that we're all Freudians or that we're all, you know, kind of Victorians. But we've we we haven't fully understood how deep that narrative goes. Um, and I say that as someone who, before I got sick, I knew people who were kind of sick in the ways that I knew the mother of one of my friends was sick in this sort of vague way. And I always thought, why is she just lying around on her, you know, and now I have a lot of empathy for her. But at the time I I had that vision of, right, the sort of neurotic hysteric, um, who's making, you know, who's a hypochondriac. So, you know, I think we, we need to make this more visible by talking about the problem, first of all, and recognizing the problem that, that, in addition to whatever, you know, psychosomatic illness is out there, there's a lot of non-psychosomatic illness that's incipient that we don't have the tools to diagnose early enough and so there's a lot of people living with illness before we can recognize that illness is there.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I'm of two minds about this and I think again this is like part of my defense mechanism to to see yeah. it as a doctor as opposed to a yeah. patient, but you know, I went I went six years not feeling well without a diagnosis, which is very, I think that's the average lag for, for lupus. And, you know, I don't have any resentment toward the physicians because I think the disease just takes time to declare itself. And in many ways, I look back on that as, as lucky because it was six years not being on Plaquenil and not being on immunosuppressive therapy and these drugs that have... Toxicities that accumulate over time, and so I think so. So much of what I took away from your book isn't as much. Okay, you need to give people a diagnosis when you don't know. It's just somehow you have to accompany them in that uncertainty. And I I want to. One passage I loved in your book is is a moment when you read a passage from the poet John Keats and from from his book. It's a passage that I think you had loved and you read it again. And he's writing a letter to his brothers and he's just seen his mother die of tuberculosis and he then goes on to die of tuberculosis. And he's writing to them about what distinguishes a great artist from a merely mediocre artist. And... You talk about how reading the passage sort of changed your entire experience of chronic illness, but I want to read it for, for everyone to be able to hear. He, he uses this concept, which he calls negative capability. And then he writes, it's the quality of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Mm-hmm. So what did that mean to you? And why did it change your experience of chronic illness?
0: I think it, you know, I think I'm a writer because I believe the act of naming the experiences that are hard to name, that are not transactional, that are not clear, is a really important work that we need to do, you know, collectively, individually. And I I think reading that, I was like, oh, right. I'm not alone. Like John Keats has named (laughs) It's already, you know, 100 and some years ago, and what he named was that. I think when you come into contact with illness in general, um, you're brought into a stark, a stirring, a potentially clarifying reminder of the uncertainty of life, right? And and the limits of our knowledge and the limits of our control, and this becomes really specifically real in a case where you live with an illness that's still poorly understood by the medical community um and in whatever was going on with me was it still is um and i i think his his formulation that it actually takes a kind of faith and active mind to allow for uncertainty and doubt as opposed to this, I love this phrase, the irritable reaching after fact. It so accurately describes what there is this like, oh, I've got to get it. I've got it, right? And so I thought I thought this is a reminder for both me and my physicians, right? And the loved ones in my family. And it's a reminder that situates that as a human problem, not a problem that's the special dispensation of, of the ill. Like I'm not alien, I'm actually human, is is what that quote really did for me. And it it reminded me that it was human to live with illness in the way that I was, and that I was not invisible, that in fact, this was in some sense, the the, the essential human condition in one way or another.
1: When I finished your book, I mean, I, I found myself thinking a lot about this need to be seen, how to make patients feel seen, and then my own need to be seen, because it feels like something that I should be able to kind of get over. And it made me think of a conversation I had with my dad. My dad's actually a rheumatologist. Uh-huh. And um, so was my grandfather and I I got covid in May or something and I was fully vaccinated and you know I was l- super lucky like I was sick like I had a yeah. you know viral illness but I wasn't super sick. But I, he called me and he said, how are you feeling? And I said to him, dad, COVID is just so much easier than lupus. Mm. And afterward, I well, I didn't really think about what I meant until I read your book. But I realized mm. what I meant was not that I felt physically better when I had COVID because I, I didn't feel well, but that everybody in the world – Literally, everybody understands COVID, and yeah. so few people understand lupus. And all of a sudden, I was like, This is what's hard is having to yeah. explain myself. And maybe yeah. this yeah. is what you mean when you say that we need to be seen. And at the same time, I felt like by recognizing that, I should be able to make that need go away.
0: <laughs> I know. Right? I just- <laughs> like, why do we need to be seen like what's that about i just think that's the human condition i think that everyone wants to be seen and, and that's why we have language we wouldn't have language if we didn't want to be seen and known um we would just go about our business and kind of find, we, we we would only have transactional language right we would have the language for acquiring food and shelter um uh you know Um, but we, we have poetry, we have plays, we have music, we have art, and we have those things because we long for something more and we long for some kind of meaning and we long for belonging. You know, it's very clear when you have small children that, that what they want more than anything is a sense of belonging. And I think we live in a culture in America that, you know, as you've alluded to, really fetishizes, valorizes the push through it, fake it till you <laughs> it, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger approach. And so to be chronically ill and to have to say, no, I can't do that right now. But I'm also, by the way, like a total badass. And I'm like really pushing all the time. Like you kind of want that that contradictory reality to be known. And I think our culture doesn't have a narrative for that, right? It doesn't have a framework for that. That's part of why I wrote the book. We, We need language to give shape to that so that it can be known that you are both saying, no, I can't do that. And saying, I want to you know as you were talking about before just like you're someone who has a drive and wants to commit everything like the both of those things are as you've been saying kind of exquisitely i love that word verb adverb here they're, they're 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 exquisitely simultaneous right in ways that are painful and joyful and i think we want to be seen because we we don't want to have to explain that all the time because it's tiring and also it it takes away from the sides of us that are not having to say no or not having to be circumscribed. It it takes attention away from that. And we don't get to inhabit that side of ourselves. So I think we want to be seen because we want to be the fully complex people we are. Ironically to be seen and to have chronic illness be seen clearly lets us be fuller people.
1: Hmm. I like that a lot. I want to end um, at a place where you end and it it's a passage that brings up a lot of themes that we've already discussed but I think I just want to give you one last chance to sort of speak to us as a medical community about how we can do better and you write at the end of your book one of the bitterest aspects of my illness has been this not only did I suffer from a disease but I suffered at the hands of a medical establishment that for too long failed to fully credit my testimony
0: yeah so these are the things we've been talking about, but I do think that we need to bring awareness to the fact that in the absence of clear-cut tests, the medical community tends to dismiss patient testimony. I think there's even that, I forget the name of it, the pyramid of evidence and what you're supposed to weigh the most and what weighs the least. And patient testimony is among like the least important. <laughs> I, someone sent this, some physician friend of mine sent this to me. Um, I think we should be listening to patients far more than we do. I mean, I I just do. I think that people living with illness have forms of knowledge. It may come out in strange ways. It may be full of misinformation too. But the, at baseline, there's something they know about their own experience of their body that we have to find a way to rebuild that physician-patient trust. And we have to create space in the medical system for physicians to have the time to really do that. Because I think it's a relational conversation, right? It's it's something that it happens um, through listening and through the time it takes to listen and connect. And, you know, just too often, in my own experience, but also especially, I would say, in the experience of the close to 100 people that I interviewed, um, they were met with dismissal, and they were met with this kind of reflexive, it must be anxiety. And I have to imagine that that's part of this defensive defense mechanism that you've touched on, where it's really painful as a physician who's been so highly trained not to have answers, not to know. And I think maybe one thing I can give your listeners and doctors is, I don't think as patients we always need you to know. I think we need you to always treat us as full people who have some insights and, and, and some agency in our own, it's our lives. And also, this is really important, but sometimes I felt that doctors were treating my chronic illness as just this given that I should just like adjust to, right? That it's just like, this is your lot in life. And I always found myself wanting to say, well, you know, I, it wasn't always my lot in life. And so this is a really complicated thing to adjust to and to live with. And that bears recognition, you know, that bears honoring the challenge of that.
1: Thank you for coming on. I think a lot of people will learn a lot from listening to your wisdom. My guest is Megan O'Rourke, author of The Invisible Kingdom Reimagining Chronic Illness. We spoke about uncertainty and ill defined syndromes and how important it is to patients that as physicians we find a way to acknowledge suffering, even when we don't know its cause. I hope for medicine that we not only develop some of these skills, but also find better ways to give physicians the time it actually takes to learn our patients' stories.